If you have your Bibles, turn to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11. The book of Ephesians walks us deeply into the practical and, and, and theological realities of what it means to be one in the world. Now, we've spent about seven or eight weeks in Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, and rightly so, because there is so much richness there to mine. And now we come to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11, and it would be possible for you to kind of look at this and dismiss it. And just say, right, let's get on to Ephesians 3, the big prayer Paul prays to the Father. Let's get Ephesians 2, that's kind of 11. It's kind of like he's trying to fix a squabble between first century Jews and Greeks. What does this have to do with me? And how's this going to help me in any way Monday morning? Well, as a leader and teacher of integrity, I don't need to be honest with you. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give some of you an out on this one, okay? I'm going to give you some categories. If you fit this category, you don't really check your email, go on Twitter, look for kitty pictures, you know, whatever you want to do. So this sermon does not apply to you if you've never been in a relationship that disappointed or hurt you. You can check out. You have no relationships with any form of family. You've never experienced prejudice by others against you or prejudice by you against others. You have never struggled with resentment, unforgiveness, or anger. And you've never participated in an imperfect church, which is going to be hard for you to overcome because you're sitting here and I'm the lead pastor. It's imperfect, all right? This is a powerful passage. This is a passage that calls out and exposes something in all of us that allows us to have the potential to taste of the glory of redemption and resurrection previously unknown and untouched. It's a powerful passage. So let's set it up in Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 1 begins with these amazing words. These are just excerpts from the first 13, 14 verses of Ephesians 1. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will to the praise of his glorious grace so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. We were sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. As our teaching pastor last week, Greg Pinkner, pointed out that this is all about the glory of God. I want you to think about what glory is. This is the, the uh, Beethoven's Ninth Symphony. This is a sheet from his symphony. It's considered by many to be his greatest work and maybe the greatest a musical work in all of history. Uh, written uh, in including a choral component, which was the first time that that had ever been done, and from which we get the song, Ode to Joy, Joy to the World, that's connected to this piece. The uh, Sistine Chapel by Michelangelo, one of the most amazing pieces of artistry ever known. The Taj Mahal, built in the 16th century now, uh, and since then has been one of the seven wonders of the world, built by a Shah in memorial to his third wife who died giving birth to his 14th child. That's the least he could have done for her, I would have to say, right? <laughs> and you look at these things and you see the vision and the passion, the creativity, the gifting, the commitment. There's just a, there's a glory to this. And rightly understood, this is a glory reflecting a greater glory of God's vision and passion and creativity and his gifting and commitment. Someone, uh, the, when, when Beethoven wrote the Ninth Symphony, those who were beginning to sing it with him the first time complained and said, we don't like the way you've arranged the high notes together. They, this isn't right. And Beethoven's response was, I won't change the way God give it to me, gave it to me. 
so you must adjust. Beethoven had a sense of having received a reflection of a bigger picture of who God is. And Beethoven's point was, we have to adjust to his glory. And this is the point of Ephesians. We are adjusting to his glory, and his glory is about the praise of his grace. His glory is about, the, his, in musical terms, the opus. In artistic terms, the masterpiece. In architecture terms, the wonder. The greatest opus, masterpiece, wonder of God's glorious grace is the work he does in the heart and lives of sinners. It is to his glory that he chooses to love us and change us into his likeness. And Ephesians 2, 1 through 10 reflects on this and moves back and kind of summarizes it. And this, this is how you can summarize the outline of 2, 1 through 10. You, and the S is singular, you were dead in sin. You are alive in Christ. You will be forever, you will forever be deeply loved by God. Verse 4, but God... You were dead, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. You were dead, but God, you are alive. You will forever forever, forever be experiencing the lavish riches of his grace to the praise of his glorious grace. And we can say of this passage that grace is lethal. It is least lethal to the death that results from sin. Grace puts to death, death. Now, that is exactly the same structure, the same arrangement, and the same direction that verses 11 through 22 are now going to go. Because now we move from the singular to the plural. Plural, you were separated from God and his family. You are joined to God and his family. You will forever be in the presence of God and his family. Salvation is individual, but not exclusively. We are saved individually in relationship with Christ, but our salvation immediately joins us to God's family, his household. This is the point of Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11 through 22. This is the direction Paul will go, and he will point out things that are relevant to the, the audience he's speaking to, but just as relevant to us. So let's get started there. Therefore, verse 11, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. The Gentiles, he's addressing the Gentile believers in Ephesus in the book of Ephesians, and he says, you were called uncircumcision. That's a derogatory term. Remember when David said of Goliath, how can you let this uncircumcised Philistine stand here and mock our God? The, the physical mark of circumcision was a physical symbol of being chosen as God's people. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ. Gentiles, you had, no, you had nowhere to turn. You were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now... Hear the structure? You, you were on the outside. You, weren't, you did, could not belong to the people of God. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once were far off 
have been brought near by the blood of Christ. The terms far off and near are used in the Old Testament to refer to people who are separate and distant from God and those who are close to him. The far off Gentiles, the near Jews. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in the flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross thereby killing the hostility. There's so much in this verse. Let me just unpack four points for you. First of all, Solomon's temple in Jerusalem is built with layers of who has access. The farther you go in, you get to the Holy of Holies, only the high priest once a year. The external courtyard, the, the farthest out is the place the Gentiles are allowed to come. And the wall between them and the next layer is three walls thick. Paul is saying that physical symbol, that sense of being on the outside is gone because of Christ. Second of all, it says the law, uh, by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. Now, this is a difficult one because Jesus said, I didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And Jesus didn't abolish the moral uh, components or the spiritual components of the covenants or the commandments or the uh, what God had called the, the people to. He said, I came to fulfill them. He increased the moral clarity. He said, you've heard it said, you know, don't commit adultery. I'm telling you, when you looked at her and you let your eyes linger and your mind think and you thought about how you might take her for your own, that is lust and you are as guilty as if you'd committed adultery with her. Now, are the consequences immediately the same? No, but your need for grace is absolutely the same. Your condemnation before God, apart from my grace, is the same. You've heard it said, don't commit, a, don't commit murder, don't, don't kill people. But I'm telling you, Jesus said, I'm telling you, when in your mind you condemn that person as a fool, as an idiot, and you want them gone, and you want to at least harm them socially... You're in just as much need of grace and forgiveness. Are the consequences different? Yes, but your sin is equally before God to be condemned. You see, the key is expressed in ordinances. We are not called to rule-keeping. We're called to worship. Is the moral fabric the same? Yes, it's more intense. The need for grace is even more. Are the commandments still valid? Yes, they are, but even more so because it has to do with a heart being submissive to Christ. Thirdly, to, he might create himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. There were Jews who were called by God, and there were Gentiles who were not his chosen people. The Gentiles could have access, but it was limited. But neither the Jews nor the Gentiles had a means of salvation apart from Jesus. The sacrifices weren't meant to save them. They were meant to be expressions of the hope in the one who would come to be the sacrifice. Jews and Gentiles are condemned before Christ in their sin, but, and before God in their sin, but Jews and Gentiles are equally saved before Christ by his grace. And then finally, to understand the peace, you have to grasp the hostility. 
You have to grasp the hostility. Now, most of us in here are Gentiles. We have a few Jewish uh, members of our church or who are Jew by race and culture and background. But most of us are Gentiles. So what we're about to talk about is a moment in time where a group of Jews are extraordinarily hostile towards Gentiles. And I need to pause for a moment because history is riddled with anti-Semitism. It's not just the Holocaust. We're talking millennia, generational. We're talking about some of the greatest Christian scholars we know Early Fathers, Renaissance, Reformation, who still held anti-Semitic attitudes that were not honoring to Christ. So let us begin by saying when we read the Jews and the Gentiles, this is not, well, the Jews, this is a group of people who were Jews acting in these ways. Just as there are groups of Gentiles who have acted toward the Jews in equally hostile ways. But make no mistake, this is hostility between the Jews and the Gentiles. Turn to Acts chapter 21, and we just get a glimpse of this. Acts chapter 21. Acts 21. You know, don't you wonder sometimes why preachers repeat it so many times? Like I do sometimes. I mean, if I'm sitting there, I'm thinking... Like, is he just trying to help us remember it? Has he forgotten what he's going to say next? Anyway, so that's my thought. All right, so Acts chapter 21. That's just things that go through my mind while you're turning the pages. All right. So uh, Paul has been uh, in Jerusalem, and he's been trying to help work out between the Jews and the, and the Gentiles a lot of tension because there are Judaizers, which are Jewish converts, who think the Gentiles have got to become, they've got to become in every way Jewish, Right? And there are Gentiles who still hold a lot of resentment towards the Jews because they've been the outsiders and, and I'm sure had some anti-Semitism. And so Paul's in here trying to help everybody understand what happened in Acts 15 when the church and the leaders, James, the brother of Jesus, who's the leader of the uh, church in Jerusalem, and the disciples got together and Paul and Barnabas and they agreed together on how it was that you could be Jewish, truly Jewish, truly Gentile and still be in Christ and how we'd honor, respect and love one another. So Paul's trying to work that out. But there's a group of people who are not happy with Paul on this. And after you've been there about a week, verse 27 of Acts 21, verse 27, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who is teaching everyone, everywhere, against the people and the law in this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, with him in the city, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Paul had a Gentile believer from Ephesus with him, and they accused him of taking Trophimus into the temple. Like most accusations that stir a crowd, it's half true. Paul has been teaching for Christ, but he has not been teaching against Jews. He's Jewish. And he is in the middle of participating in Jewish ritual and, 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 and spirituality, even as a follower of Jesus. But not under the law, because the sacrifice has come. But they are not happy. All the city was stirred up. The people ran together. They seized Paul, dragged him out of the temple, and at once the gates were shut. And as they were seeking to kill him, 
Word came to the tribune of the cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. He at once took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. This is the Romans. And when they saw the tribune, the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. And they recognized, you know, we better, we're going to get in trouble if we kill this guy. You know what the Romans did? They took Paul. They couldn't. They just like, what, why, are you, why are you mad? What's he done wrong? We don't get it. So they decided to beat it out of Paul. They're just going to beat him until he, they figure out what's wrong with him. Like, this is not justice that I want. You know what I'm saying? So Paul says, hey, you can't do this to me. I'm Roman. How smart is God? A Jew, a Roman, reached the Gentiles. And Paul said, not just a Jew, I am the, I am the top of the, li- I have done this all right. Thoroughly Jewish. So the crowd is completely incited against him. We've seen, we've seen a crowd incited recently, if you've watched anything on the news in, in Crimea. The Ukrainians and the Russians wrestling, struggling, hatred bullying over, ethnic, ethnic hostilities just pouring into the streets and, and, and literally reaching around the world with its political ramifications. And if we're really honest and we look back on our own history as a nation, we will understand that we are not far removed from this. Or this, where young people seeking equality have no opportunity to do so and are beaten down and attacked and in some cases lynched. It is amazing to me how God sets me up in sermons. I did this on Tuesday. Between the time I did this and today, I've sat with two different young men who have been profoundly wounded by whites. And I watched one of the instances. Two African-American young men whose experience of the hatred and the prejudice of southern whites has caused great wounding. We have come a long ways But the scars are deep. They are deep in us, whether we're white or black. Or if we're Asian or Native American participating in this culture. Hostility lingers. Paul tells his story, tells his testimony. And then he comes to this part. Everybody's listening. The Romans are listening. The Jewish crowd's listening. And then in verse 21 of chapter 22, turn to chapter 22, verse 21, Paul says this. And he said to me, go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. That's not just physically, that's spiritually. Far away to the Gentiles. And up to this word, they listened to him. And then they raised their voices and said, away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. Now, that's as hostile as it's going to get. Wipe him off the face of the earth. He does not deserve to live. That's hostility. And there's Gentile hostility all throughout the scriptures as well, and even in our own history. And Ephesians, Ephesians walks us into hostility in the heart. And you may still be sitting here thinking, "Uh, this is important to me because, hang on, hang on. Ephesians, back to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 13. 
Ephesians 2, 13. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both... Jew and Gentile, both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off, Gentiles, and peace to those who were near, Jews. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens to one another, but you are fellow citizens with all the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, filled with Jews and Gentiles who belong to Christ. In him you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Everything has changed. Grace is lethal. It puts to death death. And grace is lethal to the hostility that results from sin. Grace is lethal to hostility. But make no mistake, and walk with me in this, make no mistake... Hostility dies a long, slow, painful death in individuals and in cultures and in churches and in marriages and in families. It is a long, slow, painful, agonizing death. Tim Kimmel tells a story in, in, in his book, I, I just, I have read about this. I don't have, I don't have personal knowledge of this because I've never really, uh, I've spent uh, one day in Japan. I've never been to Korea. But I've had, I've taught in uh, an international seminary, taught with Koreans and Japanese students. And I have a, just a little bit, but don't really understand what happened after the Japanese invaded and occupied Korea in the early 20th century. Now, again, I've got to be, you know why I have to put so many disclaimers out there? Out there? Because this is human reality, folks. So let me disclaim, if you are of Japanese descent or culture, what I'm about to talk about is Japanese hostility towards Koreans returned by Koreans. So if you're of Japanese or Korean descent, this is not saying this is who you are. This is not stereotyping. By the way, do you know what stereotyping is? It's an expression of your hostility. When you stereotype, it's hostility. When I said to my young black friend yesterday, don't worry about it, they're just a bunch of southern rednecks, that was my hostility. That wasn't righteous, that was hostility. You understand what I'm saying? So hear this carefully. But understand, it's true of all humanity, not just particularly these two cultures. When Japan occupied Korea, there is much record of the raping, murder, torture, destruction 
by the Japanese occupiers, as has been true in nations for history on end. It was particularly heinous, and one of the groups that took the most suffering were the Christians who were, who were Korean. And one of the stories that comes out of this experience is that in a particular village where they had a small church that was known for the vibrant singing, the small Korean congregation, like all Christians, had been locked out of their church, were not allowed to be in the church. And the pastor of the church kept pleading with the Japanese occupying force, the leader, the military leader, please just let us have church. Just, we're not doing it. We're just going to sing and teach and worship. Let us have church. And so finally, just finally tiring of the persistence of the pastor, the uh, military leader said, okay, you get church. You get one church service for one hour. And so they gathered in the church, this congregation, and people who remember the experience, who weren't in there, remember hearing how vibrant, how passionate they were to be able to sing together again. They sang, Nearer My God to Thee, one stanza of which is, But drops of grief can ne'er repay the debt of love I owe. Here, Lord, I give myself away, tis all that I can do. And as they're singing this, they begin to realize that the doors to the church are being sealed shut. And there's smoke entering the room. Some, in a panic, leap out of the windows of the church only to be shot dead immediately before they even hit the ground. And the pastor and anyone of adult age understands what's going to happen. And so together, choking through the smoke and the, and the horror of the moment, they sang, At the cross, at the cross where I first saw the light and the burden of my heart rolled away, it was there by faith I first received my sight, and now I am happy all the day. The conclusion of which led to the roof collapsing and all, everything and everyone turned to ash. And historically, not totally, but historically, the hostility between Koreans and Japanese is significant. In 1972, a group of Christians from Japan were touring Korea. They came upon this village and this story. And they said, we need to do something. So they went back, they raised the money, and they rebuilt the church. And they invited the people from the village to come with them so that they might ask on behalf of their ancestors, not what they had done, but on behalf of their ancestors, would you forgive us? The Koreans agreed to come but with their hearts well guarded. And as they read the names of all those who had perished, men, women, and children, the pain came back, and so did the hostility. And their hearts closed. They sang, Nearer my God to thee, but with no emotion. But when they began to sing, At the cross, at the cross, where I first saw the light, and the burden of my sin rolled away, the Koreans began to sob and weep because the issue in the room was not just what the Japanese ancestors had done to their ancestors. The issue in the room was their hostility towards those who belonged to Jesus. And that is his grace. And that 
is his glory, and that is his power. And I am going to try to my best in about 10 minutes, these next 10 minutes, to demonstrate to you how this will change your Monday morning. You see, the outline of Ephesians 2, 11 through 10 is you were separated from God and his family. You are joined to God and his family. You will be forever in the presence of God and his family. These things are true. The grace of love of God, the love of God forgives us and transforms us. But hostility dies such an agonizing death. My wife and I last weekend were at a marriage retreat. There were 22 couples, including the couple that was leading. It was Dan Allender and his wife, Becky. Uh, Teresa and I, most of the time when we're somewhere, one of us is speaking. So this was just us, for us, to be there. Dan began the the weekend session. He's a tremendous uh, facilitator and counselor and writer. Many of you have read his books. But he began his session talking about the contempt we have in our hearts for our spouses. And I was like, well, this isn't relevant to me. I love this woman. And I really do. And I enjoy her. And sure, we've got some stuff, but overall, we're, this is a pretty good marriage. And, I mean, we even teach marriage conferences. Um, and, you know, most of the marriage conferences, we tell everything we did wrong, but it's still helpful, right? And, I, and he said, I want you to start thinking about places in your life, just pockets of resentment that you've never resolved with your spouse. And I was like, oh, Okay. Conflicts that you just avoided, avoid because you don't really want to go heart to heart with her in the grace of Jesus. Oh, God, I'm at the wrong place. I wonder how the final four is going. You know, I'm like, I'm thinking of my brackets. I am in deep, deep water here. And by the time we got to Sunday morning and washed each other's feet and took communion, I wept. I do love her, and we have a good marriage, but I hold hostility towards her for some things said, done, that haven't ever really been resolved. And sometimes I just plain avoid her because I just don't like to deal with that part of her. And that is contempt. And if I can't die to that, I can't resurrect intimacy and love for her. And 31 years into it, I've got a lot of dying left to do. But his grace is deeper and wider and higher than all of my hostility. And I think I'm right. You're harboring contempt and hostility that yet needs to be resurrected too. I think I'm right. Because you grew up in a family. Many of you are married. Some of you are divorced. Many of you are single. You've been hurt. You've been disappointed. People like me have been very willing participants in doing that to some of you. I've probably hurt some of you. Sometimes I hold contempt for you. Someone gets in the way of what I want to do here, contempt builds up in my heart. Sometimes I avoid resolving it. I'll just work around you. That's contempt. Four things I want you to walk away with today. Number one, there are absolutely zero have-nots in Christ. 
There's no such things as haves and haves nots. Now, there are people who access, experience, and submit and surrender more deeply to the things of Christ. No doubt about that. I hope you begin to move in that direction. But there's nobody here where you're like, well, these are the people that got Jesus, and these people kind of got These are first class, second class. None. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing the riches on all who call on him, for everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. If you feel like you're a have, you need to repent of your arrogance. And if you feel like you're a have not, you need to repent of your arrogance. It is arrogant for you to define yourself against what he says. That's contempt for God and his grace. You know, I, we all feel like others sometimes. This, I was at, at Seaside before we went to this retreat, Seaside, Florida. We get these little rental bikes. My one thing is do not put a basket on my bike, all right? It's, it's already looks like a girl's bike. It's already, you know, one speed. It's already, I'm already the super pale white guy on the beach. Let's just don't make it worse. So I'm driving down on my little Seaside, and here come Ken and Barbie on their 72 speeds, right? Their little tight tushies and their little tight bellies. And I'm like, oh, God, I wish I was like that again. And then I realized I was never like that. <laughs> like at no time did I look like him. I felt so other. I felt a little contempt for him and I felt a little contempt for me. I sat down with a New York Times best-selling author this last week, sat for about an hour and a half and had this great conversation, and I went to it feeling so other, because if you go on Amazon, you can buy my books for like 75 cents. <laughs> There's no other in Christ. Second of all, at your core, you are a reconciler and a peacemaker. Do you know why it feels so wonderful to die to this stuff and be resurrected? Because then you're with Jesus. You were made like him, and he's a reconciler and a peacemaker. Not a peacekeeper who avoids conflict, a peacemaker who goes to death and resurrection. Therefore, if anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That's the definition of who you are. And you can't have this ministry if you're not willing to experience the killing of your hostility. Three, the unified church is the world's primary access point to Christ and the Father. Jesus prayed that they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory of his grace is when sinners get together and sin against each other and still love and forgive and walk together. The church and your small group is not about kumbaya and inch deep spiritual relationships where we all make each other feel better about how much we know. Relationships are about being exposed like I am in my marriage, like I am in this church, like I am in the men I meet with each week. Exposed for how much grace I need and to find it in him and still be loved by his people. And finally, false gospels build walls and hostility because they're about us. The true gospel tears down walls and kills hostility because it's about him our peace. Paul Young Choi is the pastor of the largest church in the world. He's a Korean pastor. A number of years ago, he was invited to Japan to speak 
to Japanese pastors. I just told you the history a while ago. Paul Young Choi, this brilliant man of God, stood before these thousand pastors and said these words, I hate you, I hate you, I hate you, and wept and sobbed and fell before God in confession. One Japanese pastor courageously walks to Reverend Choi, puts his arms around him, then two, then ten, then a hundred, then a thousand surround him, praying for him, loving him, breaking the bonds of hostility between Japanese and Korean because of the peace of Christ. And when everyone was seated, Pastor Choi recomposed himself. He said, I love you. I love, I love you. I love you. And that is to the praise of his glory. That's the grace that's available for you in your relationships. Die to your hostility so you can live to his love. Let's stand in prayer. We'll have, past, we'll have elders and spouses available for prayer. Before Monday morning, ask God to expose the hostility in your heart so that you might know his life. Father God, may all of us know the peace that is ours in Jesus, a peace that can be painful and yet so hopeful, a peace that takes hostility and all of its resistance and breaks it down and kills it so that our hearts can be resurrected for Jesus and with Jesus. May all this be done to the praise of your glorious grace. In his name we pray. Amen. Grace and peace. Thank you.